Thank you for joining us for another episode of the Music History Project. Today is a very exciting episode where you get to hear from the founders and innovators of the Fairlight Synthesizer, Kim Ryrie and Peter Vogel. Welcome to the Music History Project. We're your hosts. I'm Mike Mullins. Dan Del Fiorentino. And Michelle Shedler. All of our content comes from the Oral History Program, which is sponsored by NAM, the National Association of Music Merchants. And that is a collection that is over 3,500 interviews and constantly growing. If you want to check out any of our content or any of our other interviews that aren't featured today, please check out our website at www.nam.org library. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Music History Project. It's so good to be here um, talking synthesizers. We've got a great interview for you today, and it's a double shot. Um, we'll be hearing two voices, Kim Ryrie and Peter Vogel, um, some of the most innovative voices in synthesizers, I think. Absolutely, and this is really exciting for us because back in September the 8th, 2017, we had the interview uh, to interview both of these guys at the very f uh, same time. And it was a, uh, a long coming uh, project. It took us many years to finally get this interview. And I have to say, this is one of the crown achievements as far as I'm concerned of the oral history program at NAM is having this particular story. Great innovators, fantastic guys, best friends from school days, uh, how they met and how they uh, progressed to create this amazing technology that was uh, very instrumental in uh, inspiring a whole generation of synthesizers and inventors during the 1970s and 80s is absolutely remarkable. I kind of felt like this was the ground, the foundation, and um, very, very pleased and happy that we got both of them at the same time. And what's even better than that is the actual story. And that's why we thought for this podcast, we're just going to play the full interview. We're going to have them tell you the complete story, how they met, their own backgrounds individually, and then their story as it unfolded together uh, and them chiming in back and forth about meeting Stevie Wonder and all those great little nuggets of history that uh, those involved with Fairlight will know very well. And this interview is a little bit on the long side. So for the podcast, we're only going to be chiming in um, every once in a while just to give you a little bit of fun information about what's going on. But as far as the interview goes, they do a great job of telling the story. So why don't we just hand it off to them without further ado, Kim Ryrie and Peter Vogel. Kim, thanks so much for taking the time. I appreciate it. Pleasure. One of the things I thought would be kind of fun to talk a little bit about is your background and your passion for music and how that developed. Did you have a lot of music and sound and audio in your house when you were a kid? Yeah, we had a lot of music at home. Uh, my mother was into classical music a bit. But what, what got me going was when I heard uh, Walter Carlos, I'm thinking of Wendy Carlos, but it's, it was then Walter Carlos who did Switched On Bark and uh, that was using analogue synthesizers and I, I just sort of heard that and I thought, oh, that's unbelievable. And, uh, and at the time I had an electronics magazine and we published projects for people to build every month, you know, DIY projects, and I talked everyone into doing a synthesizer as a 
DIY project, a, a big analogue synthesizer, because I couldn't think of another way of getting hold of one. And, um, and they all agreed. So over about 12 months, I think, we, we published that design and uh, it became, it was known as the Electronics Today International 4600. And we had an English edition and also a French edition of the magazine. So there was, you know, there was about a thousand of these things built. Um, but when I'd finished it, I thought, ah, oh, you know, that only makes, I can't make a natural sound with it. And, uh, and I, I thought, uh, and it was, as, it was at the time when, when micros had just started coming out. I think it was the 6800 and mm. things like that. And I didn't know anything about them, so I called Peter up. Uh, Peter and I used to design, play around at school, designing things like that said, uh, you know, what are you doing? And Peter said, oh, not much, what are you doing? And, <laughs> and, uh, and uh, I said, I, I, how about we build the world's greatest synthesizer? And he said, oh yeah, how's it gonna work? And uh, I, I sort of came up with this fanciful idea which turned out to be completely ridiculous, but at the time it seemed feasible. So we, um, we, we started off uh, business in my grandmother's basement <laughs> down on the waterfront of uh, Sydney Harbour. <laughs> and uh, I think we pulled, uh, you know, a, a couple of hundred dollars together to sort of incorporate the company. And, uh, and but we didn't really know where it was headed, but um, we just thought, well, if we could make a sort of digitised version of an analogue synthesiser, we could make more realistic sounds. And, and that's what got me started with the um, with the Fairlight plan. That's amazing. So what digital um, options were there at that point? None. That's what I thought. So what did the idea <laughs> this, this, this was This was pre-Apple. Um, oh, wow. And, uh, and in fact, um, we were introduced f fairly early on in the piece uh, to a guy called Anthony Furse who had had experience with microprocessors and he'd designed a, 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 a Motorola microprocessor platform and, and also it was also intended to be able to be used for um, musical related research mainly and uh, so that sort of gave us a, a kick along but um, so prior to that we were, uh, well Peter actually had been working on some video products, he'll, he'll tell you about that. But uh, so we were also thinking of doing some video products in the early early stages of the of the company. So had you heard uh, you heard the Moog and, and those kind of things on record? Did you ever see them? Well, it, the only record, pretty much at the time, was switched on Bach, the mm -hmm. uh, the the uh, Walter Carlos record. Uh, oh no, by then there would have been more, I guess. Uh, I, I can't think of any, but um, Sabotnik I think had a few and, and things like that. There would have there were well there was a bit of electronic music going on, which is sort of you know not so much westernised pop music. It was more esoteric stuff. That, there was a bit of that going on, mm -hmm. so uh, we weren't really into that, and uh, so that's that's pretty much how it all started. Mm, very interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So, did you play an instrument as a kid? No, I was in a band playing congas. <laughs> All the others in the band were professionals, so uh, you know I was the ring-in and the sound guy. <laughs> but, well, you uh, need the sound guy, right? Yeah, no, you, I, you have to be too devoted to be a real musician, and and I think in a way that was um, part of the 
part of uh, what pushed the, 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 the original Fairlight. You know, we, we couldn't do it as or I couldn't do it myself. You know, I couldn't play the thing. So let's invent a sequencer, you know, so you can program all this stuff. And, uh, and that was part of the motivation for, for what we were doing, I think. That's very interesting. Yeah. That's cool. So how did you first meet Peter? Oh, we were at school together uh, for a long time. <laughs> we went to school for, and we and we designed these little projects at school. We had the keys to the science block, and we'd do these little supposed research projects together. And then we talked the um, the management of the school into letting us build a dimming system for the school auditorium, and that was uh, Peter designed that, and that was all pretty. Um, fun. We did the whole thing for about a thousand dollars, I think, you know, for a <laughs> something like that. But, um, yeah, no, it was, it was a, it was a long-term project. And then when we left school, we hadn't seen each other for probably three or four years before we, we you know, uh, before I called Peter again for help. <laughs> so Peter was the design mm -hmm. guy. He was the, he was the, the electronics guru, not me. So. So Paul. Prior to Walter Carlos coming into your life, what were your what was your direction? Uh, directionless. <laughs> uh, I, well, I, that's not quite true. I thought I was going to be uh, do some filmmaking, and I joined a film school, and uh, I worked with Phil Noyce. I don't know if you've heard of him. He did uh, films like Clear and Present Danger, mm. but in those days we were up in a we were up in a. There were six of us in the class. We had to team up in pairs and make a 10 minute movie and it was sort of up above a sex shop in in the in the um, uh, you know in the downtown city <laughs> and uh, I remember we made a I, uh, I made a movie called Recesses and some guy from Channel 9 saw it and said oh do you want to be second unit cameraman on a on a stunt movie and so I got all the slow motion parts, you know, where the guy got shot in the chest with the exploding bullet and the smoke and stuff, and sort of, you know, looking up from the, the gutter in slow motion, you see the smoke and flames coming, coming out where, where this guy got shot with a bullet, you know. <laughs> so, uh, so that was fun, but I, I actually, after a week of just standing around waiting for other people to get their act together, I thought, oh no, I don't want to do this. <laughs> But it was it was fun, you know. Peter, thanks for taking the time. Um, yeah, I'd love to just get a little background on yourself, and, and I know you have a passion for audio and and uh, and music. Did you have a lot of of music when you were growing up? Um, I I did. My uh, my mother and my older sister were both musicians. Um, my sister went on to pursue a career in, in the music industry, but uh, my passion was in electronics. Uh, I, according to my parents, about the age of four was when I first became fixated on, a, on anything to do with electricity, uh, and that I would um, find metal things to stick into PowerPoints and learnt that the one on the left is the one that's worth poking things into, the one on the right doesn't do anything, nor does the one at the bottom. Um, so then they bought these little plugs, the plastic things that you hammer into the PowerPoint so that children don't get electrocuted. Um, so I then graduated to the use of tools so that I could undo them and get back in and get my fix. 
and I learned about uh, electrical circuits and that there was no point doing it if you're standing on the carpet. Uh, you actually had to be touching something that was grounded in, in order for that to work. So that, that all became very educational very quickly. And then I moved on to you know, pulling apart televisions and putting them back together in different ways and making thi any, anything that had a big flash or an explosion was, was good value. Um, my mother uh, was once in the, in the kitchen and I was in my, you'd call it a bedroom, although you, if you didn't look carefully you couldn't see that there was a bed. It was just full of shit. And uh, there was, it's very rare in Sydney, but occasionally every 50 years or so there's a little earthquake. And one day there was one of these little tremors and everything, windows rattled and so on. And my mother casually called out from the kitchen, Peter, what have you done now? <laughs> so I was blamed for the, for the whole of Sydney because she was so accustomed to feeling the house shake. Um, and then I went on to, uh, I, I was just obsessed with anything electronic and I would, would uh, uh, go to the, to the rubbish dump and collect up anything that was electrical, electronic, pull all the parts out of it, build, build stuff. Um, through my whole school career I managed to turn every subject into an electronics project and uh, I, I remember in, uh, I must have been in, in fifth grade we had to do a class project which was about the post office. You know, it was one of those, you know, write, write about the history of the post office and so on. And all the other kids came in with, you know, drawings of this was the horse and cart that delivered the mail and now here's the mail van and now here's the jet that delivers the aeroplanes. Um, I came in with my homemade fax machine which would send images from one classroom to the other. Um, so this was so I was uh, 11 years old, so this was 1965. <laughs> and uh, this fax machine worked, was made out of, a, I had a, a, a big tin can about this, it was like one of those that tin peaches or something comes in. And it had an axle through the middle and a, and a rubber belt and a gramophone motor that drove it around. So this drum rotated. Then there was a screw thread with a nut on it that pulled a, a, um, a photo sensor across and it had a lens on it that had been taken out of an old camera that I found. So this thing scanned you, put your image with sticky tape onto this drum. It's rotating around, this thing's moving along, scanning the image, sending the impulses through some wires into the next room where there's the same thing again but this time we've got a felt tip pen and an electromagnet going tip, 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 tip on. And uh, of course there was no synchronisation between these two things so you had to sort of get them spinning at the right speed and when they seemed to be spinning at the right speed you turned it on and as a result all the images came out this really interesting sort of they were always like this or like that unless you got the speed quite right but uh, it wasn't called a fax machine because fax machines weren't invented for another probably 10 or 15 years after that but uh, that was my childhood <laughs> <laughs> that's amazing what did you call that didn't have a name. It was oh. just one of Peter's things. Your project, yeah. <laughs> Peter's project. <laughs> yeah. That's crazy. I still have a few of these things in a in a in a box in my uh, shed at home. Um, a bit later, a few years later, I moved into digital technology because I became very interested in computers, 
and I actually have still the remnants of my first computer that I built and the uh, storage mechanism there was paper tape, punched paper tape. Mm. And I actually built this, I've still got remnants of it, all the rubber has perished and so it's a big mess now, but it, uh, it used um, paper tape like out of a, uh, an adding machine in those days. It used to turn a handle, it would do. so it's paper tape about this wide and it was made f using my, my favourite thing was uh, uh, stuff called Meccano, I think you can still get it, but it's, it's uh, metal, it's a construction kit, I don't know what they call it today, but they're the sort of pieces of metal with punched holes in them and you get uh, axles and gears and pulleys and that sort of thing, you can build whatever you want. Um, probably the only child to ever build a paper tape punch and reader using this, but it actually worked and it would pull the paper tape through here and solenoids would go bang 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 and punch holes in the paper and then on the reading side of it um, it used the uh, pickup brushes off slot cars now in those days slot cars were a big thing so you could buy these little metal brushes and i had those across the paper tape and as the holes went past it poked through the through the paper and made contact and uh, so that was my input output mechanism and um, that connected to my computer and you could actually do stuff. <laughs> <laughs> How intriguing. Did, did any of these early projects uh, relate to uh, audio and sound? Uh, no, no. The, I, I was, was not focused on that at, at all until Kim planted that idea. Hmm. Um, it was just any anything that was electronic and anything that seemed either difficult or preferably impossible. <laughs> <laughs> that was for you. <laughs> yeah. So tell me about meeting Kim. Uh, so we, we met at school, in, in high school, so that would have been, uh, I think Kim was one year ahead of me. So uh, when, I, when I started, when I would have been 13, he, he would have been a year ahead, so we would have been at the school together for five years mm. and um, there was it, it was a uh, a school that was uh, very big on its sort of sporting image it was in that group of of uh, it was a group of private schools that were very competitive and they did things like rowing and mm. shooting and all that sort of stuff that was a million miles from, from my interest and there was a, a little group of nerds including Kim who were not particularly oriented towards that and were more interested in, in uh, blowing shit up. <laughs> and uh, I, I think uh, the, first, the, the, the first thing that impressed me about Kim was that he was making arc lamps using carbon rods uh, out of uh, batteries so you'd, the, you'd get those very big um, dry cell batteries and pull them apart and you'd get a carbon rod about this big and about half an inch diameter. Get two of them, connect up some car batteries, the more the merrier, and then put the rods together and you get this massive arc light. And that was, that was pretty cool. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, that, that was uh, the first, my first introduction to Kim, I think. Mm. And uh, then we spend a lot of time 
searching through uh, secondhand metal dealers. So there were the, there was a, in particular there was one company who had the contract for scrapping IBM computers because in in these days in the uh, early 70s IBM only rented computers they didn't sell them and when they were when when they were retired they didn't want them going onto a second hand market so they gave them to these people who's who swore on pain of death that they would just reduce it to scrap metal and <coughs> Kim and I fronted up I don't remember how we found this guy but uh, there were these complete IBM mainframe computers you know the things with the big tape uh, vacuum column tape drives and printers with platens this wide and massive things and just racks and racks of equipment and and uh, we said oh can we can we buy it as it is he said no no I have to scrap it and we said oh come on no one's gonna know and he said oh yeah what's a couple of kids gonna do with computers sure you can have them so <laughs> I think we, we hired a truck or something and took took it all away and uh, ended up in the basement of my home and I spent maybe a year or two figuring out how it all went back together and uh, you know there were things there were the cables this big with like 200 conductors that had just been cut with bolt cutters and I spent you know the whole I would spend weeks and weeks and weeks get, trying to match up how these cables had been cut and putting them back together and uh, yeah, that's how I spent a lot of time. <laughs> and uh, then after, uh, and so Kim left school a year ahead of me. And then we both went and did some other things for a couple of years. And um, then one day Kim called me and said, oh, I've got this great idea. Um, he'd already developed this analog synthesizer which was which was pretty cool in its day but it's like all analog synthesizers it suffered from the problem of m being monophonic and being impossible to patch in that you once you've set up some patch you'd never get back to it again mm. it was you'd get a great sound and then you could say well never gonna hear that sound again and uh, Kim's idea was let's connect a computer to it and so we can hit save and then come back another time and it'll all be, be the same. That, that sounded like a great idea. And that's what we set off to do and spend a couple of years actually um, building something that did that. Okay, so I think it's really cool to have you guys both together. Thanks so much for being here. One of the things I thought we could uh, begin talking about now is this partnership that you guys developed based on the friendship from high school. Yeah. And tell me a little bit about how the, the company started from this. Uh, well, <laughs> we had... You made the phone call. You get to go first. Okay, well, yeah, I made the phone call. And uh, what happened, um, my... I had some real estate suitable for a, an office, which was my grandmother's basement, uh, as I might have mentioned. Uh, and that was on, on the side of Sydney Harbour. These days it's an extremely valuable piece of land. Uh, before we were there, um, a famous Australian called Lawrence Hargrave used to design his aeroplanes in this same workshop. And in fact, he's on one of our 
uh, uh, I think it's the $20 bill or something, the photo of Lawrence Hargrove. So we, we started out in, in his workshop. We, we didn't have any money, so we had about, uh, we had a lot of junk that we collected over the years, so we called that the, the capital of the company. We capitalised it, <laughs> all our resistors and capacitors and transistors. And, uh, and we, had, I, we had to get about three or $400 to incorporate the company, didn't we? Mm. And, uh, and after that, we started conning our parents to, to put a bit of money in and so on, and we were doing little projects, um, you know, assembling circuit boards for things, and I can't remember yeah. really. Well, <laughs> we were, uh, our, our first product was a, a video colorizer. That's and right. um, this w th this was uh, about 1973, I guess. No, it would have been 75. 75. Yeah. Um, Australia still had black and white television, and it was only launched. Color was only launched in 1975, and so all the TV studios were scrambling to find color content. They had lots and lots of black and white videotapes and so on. And uh, I thought it'd be good to make a gadget that could put add colour to black and white video. And so we produced the, this thing which was called, was it under the Fairlight name? It must have been, yeah, the it Fairlight yeah. Colourizer. Colourizer. The Fairlight's first product was called the, the Fairlight Colourizer. And uh, it was pretty successful. It was good. It basically did luminance key. It, you could set about six different grey levels, couldn't you, and turn yeah. them into any colour. And yeah. it was, you know, it was just special effects, but it was quite fun. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, there, w there wasn't a lot of competition in that market at the time, <laughs> <laughs> given that there wasn't any uh, colour TV yet. And I think the the next thing we tried was to develop a touch-sensitive music keyboard, wasn't it? I remember you took a photo of me trying to make this keyboard work, so we must have done that pretty early on. Yeah. And under every key we had a sort of coil and magnets and things so that as you push the key down it... It was individually velocity sensing keys by measuring the... the the voltage pressure genera generated by a, a little magnet and a coil under every key. Yeah, so it was, it was just a complete nightmare. Mm -hmm. And you couldn't have produced it immense, in many years. Immensely <laughs> expensive, immensely <laughs> heavy, like it, <laughs> you couldn't lift it. Right. Um, yeah. The idea was it could push back, you could adjust the field. That's right, that's right. Yeah, yeah the so reason the, for the coil and the magnet was that you could actually make it uh, react to your pushing, so yeah. it actually had a genuine feel. You could but unfortunately, the, the, the processor, there was no processor at the time to yeah. enable us to do and that. The, the amount of, you would have needed a small coal-fired power station to, to provide enough energy for all these <laughs> 88 little magnets to all be energised at once. So. But coal was good <laughs> in those days. <laughs> still is. Still is. <laughs> still yeah. Ask my Prime Minister. So, <laughs> so where does the name Fairlight come from? Well, um, the, it's not a great story. It was a complete accident. So there's a, there's a suburb of Sydney called Fairlight, which is on the other side of the harbour from here. And where, we, where our, this basement office was, looked out onto the harbour. And for about the first year, the company didn't have a name. You know, we were trying to think of a name and we were trying to combine Ryrie and Vogel in different ways to make something and it all ended up sounding like health food every time. <laughs> so we'd given up on, on that and um, 
our accountant was saying, you really need to think of a name for this company because it was was called Company 138 or something at that stage, <laughs> which wasn't really very catchy. And we were having this uh, discussion one day and the just as Kim and I were, were arguing about what the name should be, a hydrofoil, which was a, one of the one of the ferries that crosses Sydney Harbour, uh, called the Fairlight, sailed by. And I just looked out the window and I said, look, I don't give a shit, call it Fairlight for all I care. <laughs> and Kim said, that's a good name. <laughs> yeah. And that was the end of that. <laughs> so there you go. It's stuck. All right, so you are hearing from Kim Ryrie and Peter Vogel from their 2017 interview. And uh, just a little note, if you'd like to see the video that accompanies the audio of this interview, you can head over to nam.org slash library. We have some search options there, and you can see this full interview, um, and it will include the video. Fantastic. I mean, it's really funny to think, you know, the original name, as they were just talking, how it came about, the Fairlight Computer Musical Instrument, sometimes people call it CMI, started in 1975, having already worked on it for several years before that. I mean, talk about cutting edge. U- utilizing computers, which most people didn't even really know what they were, um, they were already, uh, these two guys were already trying to figure out how music can be made from a computer. I mean, it's absolutely astonishing when you sit yourself back to 1975 and thinking what else people were doing with the computer at that time. Not much. Yeah. Wasn't it a little (laughs) controversial, too, just because people didn't know what computers were and they didn't want it to ruin music or whatever? Exactly. Right. Absolutely. I mean, the fears of, oh, my gosh, here's a, you know, here's something that's going to be automated. We're going to, you know, we're going to put out all the uh, musicians out of work and the unions are going to close down. I mean, yeah, absolutely. The fear of the unknown was definitely in full force at this particular point. And it didn't seem to bother these two guys, which I thought was awesome. You know, they're like, hey, we got something really clever in our minds, and let's see if we can make this thing work. I love the story about how everything was pre-Apple. This is before, you know, we're so used to our iPhones or our laptops. They're like, we barely had a floppy disk to get started. So it's just really neat to hear how they slowly transition. Yeah, so let's get back to it. They have a lot more to tell us. Well, I'm also curious about your perspective on what was happening um, with analog sounds at the time. You had talked about the, uh, the synth that you had created and your desire to try to create digital sounds in an analog world. Tell me a little bit about that. Well, we've, uh, I, was, I was always frustrated with the limitations of the analog synthesizer. And, and as Peter described, you know, one of, the, one of the things we saw digital doing was we could at least save whatever sound you did come up with, because that was problem number one. You couldn't even get back to what, what you had before, certainly not easily. Um, but then we, th- we started thinking, well, if you had enough of these harmonic sources, you could start adding them together in complex ways, and that would get us closer to being able to make... Um, natural sounds, you know, quite natural sounds. And uh, we were sort of starting to head along those lines and, and then someone introduced us to Tony Firth, um, who they told us was also uh, working on a musical type of instrument using microprocessors. And he was doing it as a project for the 
uh, Canberra School of Music and uh, he'd, he'd received a little grant to help pay for that. And he had done some work in the US, he'd come back to Australia and, and he'd, he'd developed this dual microprocessor architecture. So it was a parallel architecture microprocessor. And in, in that day, we're talking 75, you know, 74, he would have started it in 74. Uh, so sort of Apple was 77. So we're talking sort of three years before that, Tony had come up with this dual um, parallel processing micro architecture. And it, it had to be, um, it, in those days, when you, when you interrupted a processor to say, you know, I've just pressed a key, you know, the world would just stop, you know, for tens of milliseconds and nothing had happened, um, which you couldn't do in a musical instrument, you know, the sound would be clicking and so on. So the way this worked was that one processor was, was managing the, the input-output control, such as touching keys and so on, and the other one was dealing with any sound manipulation that had to happen, uh, along with hardware design to, to do that. So Tony had done a lot of that work already, but he was needing to get into some of his other work, which was unrelated to the music or the thing, and we just met him pretty much at the at the right time, and he was sort of up to his neck in other things, and said, "Oh, and it wasn't working, you know, he couldn't he couldn't finish it." So I said, "You know, can we do a deal? You know, we'll we'll work out some arrangement, and we'll finish it off, and see what happens." And um, and so that that gave us a fast track into the microprocessor platform because he developed the microprocessor, he developed the, the uh, you know, the floppy disk controller, which in those days, this is sort of pre-hard disks. Um, and, uh, and in fact, it was, it was at, in fact, at the time, it was pre-floppy disk, wasn't it? The first one was paper tape. It was paper tape. There was a roll of paper tape, you know, a foot diameter mm. that took an hour to put through the reader. And that that you needed to do that to boot the computer. So you had to be careful not to tread on any of the paper tape that was now piled up, you know, a couple of feet high on the floor once this was, was booted. So it was a complete nightmare to begin with. Um, and then fortunately very soon after that, the, the floppy disk arrived, you know, the eight inch floppy disk, and, and that could hold 128,000 bytes on one side of a disk. And we were just like, beside ourselves with excitement, you know, that you... <laughs> and uh, so, uh, so T Tony had handed the whole thing over to us and, um, and, and there were... How many boards were there originally? There was... Um, oh, about 10 or 12 boards. At yeah, it was at least about right. 12 boards and they did different functions but, and it could play eight... The, the original design could play eight notes at a time so each board would do sort of one function. One it might do an, one board might do an attack, and the other might do a decay by times eight channels. So every board was different. So we said we soon worked out that this would be a nightmare to uh, to manufacture and to keep spare parts for, and um, and we we thought um, well, how about we just make one channel on one board and have eight of them. And so Peter went away and <laughs> only took a couple of weeks, I think, came back with, with that solution. Uh, and um, so that dramatically uh, reduced the complexity of the, of, the, of the manufacturing of this 
proposed machine, but at the same time a RAM chip had just come out, been announced, that could hold 16,000 bits of data on one chip. And we nearly died of excitement. Uh, <laughs> because we could have eight of them and we could have eight bits wide, that's one byte, times 16,000 of these, which if you had a sample rate, say, of 32K, would give you half a second of sample of real sound, which was more luxury. Than more than enough. Yeah. <laughs> You'll never need any more than that. No, so, that, and that was literally what the first, oh. uh, the first generation was. And uh, Peter, we obviously we were able to, we were lucky we, we got a bit more money in by this stage and um, not venture capitalists, they hadn't been invented back then, uh, not in Australia anyway. Um, so it was largely family money and anyone we could con into putting a bit of money into it. And, um, uh, and then what had happened, uh, next door to where, I'm, uh, where we started the company down at, on the waterfront, a, a guy, there was a friend of mine called Bruce Jackson. And Bruce uh, started a company here in Sydney called Jans, which did public address systems, outdoor public address. Anyway, he was extremely good at it and ended up working for Clare Brothers in America. Mm. And Clare Brothers did the big outdoor concerts like Elvis Presley and so on. And I, I, I can't remember the exact circumstances, but they offered him a job to go and work for them and to design a new big console for them, a touring console and so on. And he became uh, a, a very uh, well-regarded uh, sound engineer for outdoor concerts like Elvis. For instance, he told Elvis that his system sounded like, you know, the proverbial, <laughs> which no one had ever dared tell Elvis before. And uh, anyway, Bruce became, you know, his favourite mixer. Uh, so when, when we had a prototype of this thing running some years later, um, we rang up Bruce and said, uh, you know, we've got this thing and you can uh, well, I've, I've sort of missed the bit, the important bit, haven't I? I'll let you talk about it because you did it. <laughs> the sampling. Well, there's, there's several, <laughs> several steps here. Yeah. Uh, well, when we decided that having got the extra waveform memory uh, and, and what that was used for originally was Tony's idea was that you would, we would calculate a waveform that contained a certain number of harmonics at different levels. And you could use a light pen on the screen. This is, remember, this is before the mouse had been invented. So we had, Tony had done a light pen, and you point at the screen, you set these little levers as you want, this much first, uh, this much fundamental, this much second harmonic, this much third harmonic. So then we were able to animate these fixed waveforms of different harmonic content. And we, and we thought, oh, this, this is how we can start getting more natural sounds, because you could specify up to the 30-second harmonic and they could all be doing different things in an animated way. But it never really sounded that good. It sounded a bit sterile and you never knew what harmonics were supposed to do what, because it was before... The theory was good, but the, theory the technology good, but took about 20 years to, to, to get up, up to, yeah. to, to, to being able to do what... Tony had imagined. Yeah, mm. so, so Peter said, well, hang on, we've got 16K of memory here. Why don't we just sample a real sound into it? We can have <laughs> half a second. <laughs> we can have half a second. And, uh, and so it took 
two days to for you to design an A yeah. to D. Well, in those, <laughs> see, one of the problems was in those days you couldn't just go out to your local electronic shop and buy an A to D converter. Mm. A, there were no electronic shops. B, there were no A to D converters. <laughs> Other than that, it would have been easy. Yeah. Uh, so I had to build one out of discrete components, yeah. which took a couple of days, and. Uh, then I connected it up. The only sound source I had on hand was a record player. And I just sampled half a second off whatever random sound came out of the, uh, off, off this record, uh, which happened to be a piano note, and played it on the keyboard, and it sounds like a piano. Mm -hmm. And then uh, the big question, the big mystery was, well, what happens if you play it at different pitches? Will it you know, what will it sound like? And then for the first time we heard that if you play it at, you know, if you play it near its frequency it sounds just like a piano, but if you play it way down there it sounds like some whole new instrument. If you play it way up here it sounds like some whole new other instrument. And so then there was a few days of a frenzy of sample everything we could lay <laughs> our hands on and see what happens if you, you know, you take a, um, you know, a, a metal something or other and ding it together and then play it four octaves down, how does that sound? Or mm. if you take a, a sound of something or other down there and play it way up here, what does that sound like? And that was pretty exciting. Yeah, and, and it could sustain sound, so we could loop back on the memory and of course you had to find the points where it didn't sound too, too weird when it looped. But yeah. And we introduced vibrato and, and uh, tremolo and yeah. all So the, the challenge sort of was you've got eight, eight bits. You're working with eight bits and you're working with a half a second of sound. What can you do with that? And as it turned out, a hell of a lot, actually. Mm. Well, and, and it, was a, it was a variable sample rate. So actually the sample rate changed depending on what keys you were oh, playing. So if you yeah. were an octave down, it would actually go for a second, not half a second, and that's, for example. Yeah. Uh, and uh, uh, yeah, so it was it was interesting. You could do some really interesting things. So we had, a, and then we had another eight bits of volume control. So it wasn't. We pretended it was. It was, bit. it was so it was pseudo sixteen bit. <laughs> um, and uh, you know, yeah. well, we got away with it. With with eight bits, you get an inherent one percent distortion, which people seem to like, you know, in the rock and roll business. Um, as long as you kept the volume at pretty high level in the available waveform memory, and then you use the other eight bits to control the amplitude of that. And then in in future models, of course, of the Fairlight, you know, we went to real life sixteen bits and much longer memory and so on. And of course, these days it's endless. Yeah. So. Yeah. yeah, but the original 8-bit machines are still much sought after. That's, mm. that's, that's I, I'm told that they're still, the, the original one is, you still can get about $10,000 for the original yeah, but still Series quite 1 Quite a few two. of them still in use. Yeah, yeah. I, I believe because every, maybe once every couple of weeks I get an email from someone yeah. somewhere in the world saying, oh, I'm so glad to find you my Series 2 CMI uh, there's, there's a, a number of very common problems that they write about. The, uh, the, the headload solenoid on the disk drive <laughs> gets stuck. And, and yes, the, I'm afraid the, after 40 years it's out of warranty. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> the, um, the glass on the front of the screen uh, delaminates. Oh, does it? And, and uh, 
things growing. They get like a, a so fungus growing inside the... <laughs> talking the of, talking of screens, you know, you couldn't buy monitors. I remember having arguments with the guy that would blow the cathode ray tube that the colour of the green phosphor of the last batch he blew was a different green yeah, they used to make the current. Them, make those special, those yeah. green tubes. And we, we used to have to us. make the monitors. We used to have to engrave every key on the alphanumeric keyboard. There's someone in Russia who makes them now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. People who've got, picked, who need new picture tubes for their CMIs can, can buy them. Are you serious? Yeah, yeah. They're replacing okay. them. That's wow. Crazy. Amazing. <laughs> yeah. So there was a series one. How many were made? Oh. Uh, a couple, uh, hundreds, not hundreds, thousands. Yeah, uh, yeah probably a few hundred. And then what was the big difference between that and Series 2? Um, series 2, we introduced MIDI. Oh, okay. Um, uh, I, I guess. The, the, the Series 1 was pre-MIDI. It was pretty much pre-everything. <laughs> and uh, it, it used a serial communication between the, the keyboard and the and the synthesizer, but it wasn't called MIDI then because MIDI didn't exist. But after, uh, after a few years, I had a, a meeting. Um, I went to, to LA and I had a meeting with, um, I think it was Dave Smith and uh, uh, Kakahashi from Roland, uh, because we all had products that used serial communication to our keyboards and we thought it'd be a really good idea if we standardised on this. And uh, we adopted pretty much the, the product, exactly what we had on, on the original Fairlight, uh, except that um, we changed the connector because it was, we, we used a five pin Canon connector, which was a bit upmarket. And <laughs> so we agreed to use the, the DIN plug yeah. instead. That was the only really major, major change made. And at that time, we, I, th I think we supported 16, 16 channels, which we, we called, that was like the keyboard number in the protocol. And we only had, we had normally one keyboard, sometimes two, and if sometimes really wanted, someone really wanted to go wild, they might have three or four. So I thought, well, make it 16, that's more than anyone will ever want. Yes. And of course, nowadays it's the biggest, biggest gripe about MIDI is that it doesn't have enough channels. So, uh, <laughs> what did you think of the mini spec when you first saw it or heard about it? The the original mini spec. Yeah, it was just our protocol that we used, and uh, it, the the speed went up. Mm. We originally our keyboard ran at ninety six hundred, um, so it went up to to be much quicker, so that you could you know have very very low latency. But we thought. Who'd, who'd ever want less than 10 milliseconds? <laughs> than 10 milliseconds, you know. <laughs> You're hard, Nothing hard pressed to measure. Yeah. Because <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're, we're talking about our, our microprocessors were one megahertz each. each. The memory was two. Because, because yeah. the one micro, one processor would go into the memory on one cycle and the other one would go on the next cycle. So the memory was twice as fast as each yeah. processor and they could hand off to each other. It's without slowing down. Two megahertz sounded pretty quick. Yeah. <laughs> so. yeah. That's so. really interesting. So what was what came after series two? What were your thoughts? There was a two X, but I can't remember what that did. Do you remember? Uh, I think it might have might have had the output routing or something like that, the uh, matrix. Yeah. yeah. Just 
just uh, incremental improvements, mm. but it was it was still the series two was still inherently eight bit samples mm. with um, sort of compression on the on the way in and on the way out, which was was all designed to re you know, re remove the noise and artifacts and so on, but actually had a very fortuitous accidental effect on the sound of making it really sound interesting and it was the combination of the 8-bit sounds and the way we compressed the living day there were, and there was a and by the way you could you could when you went down in pitch there was a tracking uh, low-pass filter that got rid of the Nyquist frequency the switching frequency so you could the switching frequency could come right into the audio bandwidth you know you could be switching at 10k often did and often yeah. did, and uh, but this there was at least it was at least a four pole, maybe six pole filter that would track whatever pitch you were playing, so you didn't hear that. So so we had a few tricks um, that that uh, dealt with those sort of issues, mm. which all contributed to its sound, which is why yeah. it, it had a unique sound that a lot of people still lust after. <laughs> Uh, pretty much impossible to get from anything else because it was just this strange combination of a really low quality digital source and all sorts of audio pro analog processing after it to try and make it sound good again. I love the story about uh, series two. I just have to say that's, uh, you know, uh, these guys are trying to figure out, okay, who's going to be buying this? Who's going to be able to afford it? Yeah, you know, I mean, this is pretty fun stuff. And um, being so frustrated that everything costs so much money, what they wanted to do was so limited by technology at that point that they had to figure out how do we get about that? You know, how do we get what's the workaround? I did want to take just a second um, in this podcast to do a shout out to our good friend, Will Alexander, uh, the engineer. Uh, because it was really his insistence that uh, these two guys finally got together. It wasn't that Kim and Peter didn't want to do the interview. It was a matter of getting all of us together at the same time. Uh, but Will played a big role in that, and I really, really uh, am always going to be grateful. Uh, just for those guys who may not know, Will is definitely one of those behind-the-scenes engineers who was working on synthesizers in the early days to uh, help musicians get the sounds that they wanted, now, especially in the pre-MIDI years. When MIDI took care of getting the instruments to play together at the same time and sync in, before that, you needed some engineer to wire them all. And Brian Bell did that for uh, Herbie Hancock, and Will Alexander did that for a number of people, including uh, um, Emerson, Lake, and Palmer. And um, I'd love for you guys to give a, a, a little love to Will Alexander anytime you can. He's always at the NAMM shows. Um, anytime you hear Lucky Man, which is probably my favorite Emerson, Lake, and Palmer tune, uh, those tunes, uh, that sound really had a lot to do with Will, uh, along many other things that he's done. Uh, he was also uh, very instrumental in the Oberheim uh, uh, four voice, uh, which is an amazing instrument. So very clever guy. And um, in addition to that, always been very, very strong supporter of this oral history program. We got to interview Will first in 2005, and he has been a very strong uh, help uh, to us ever since. So thank you, Will. So let's get back to the story at hand of Fairlight. So about this time, people are starting to get their hands on these things too. Tell me a little bit about how you were getting 
the word out and how the distribution? Uh, well, that was probably the biggest, uh, our biggest stroke of luck, um, and th this is largely thanks to Bruce Jackson. So, uh, the year that Elvis died, which I think was 74? 77. 77. Um, uh, Bruce was no longer had a job, so he came back to Australia to visit his family, and it was literally next door to where we were we were working. And um, he he said to Kim, "What are you what are you guys doing these days?" He said, "Oh, we're making this music synthesizer sort of thing. <laughs> Would you be interested in having a look?" And he said, "Yeah, sure." And uh, we showed it to him, and he just said, "This is." You're light years ahead of anything I've seen. This is just astounding. Do you want um, some help? Wants to want to be introduced to some musicians who might be interested in seeing this. And at this stage, we had literally one prototype. This was the one that we built that worked. So we had literally this one machine that worked. And I said, oh, I don't know. You know probably wouldn't survive the trip to America. And he said, well, just bring it. You know, pack it up. Come on over and I'll, uh, I'll take you around. He, he had a little single-engine plane and he said, I'll, I'll fly you around. I'll fly you around to the studios and introduce you to a few people. And I thought this sound, sounded like a good idea. And uh, so that's what we did. And we packed up the, the prototype and I got on a plane to Los Angeles and uh, he picked me up sort of on the first day and took me to a music studio and he, and uh, I said, oh, where are we going? He said, oh, I'm good. Uh, we're going to a um, studio to, to meet Stevie Wonder. Mm -hmm. And I thought, having spent my entire life on the back end of TVs and never in front of one, I had no idea who Stevie Wonder was and I thought, a bit of a Can wanky. you imagine that? Even I knew Stevie Wonder. <laughs> I thought it was a pretty wanky name. He'd call himself Stevie Wonder. <laughs> Anyhow, um, so we'd, we'd rock up to the studio and he was, he was there recording um, at the time, I think it was the Secret Life of Plants album. And uh, we set it up and demonstrated how you could sample things. And, and uh, he just got very excited very quickly and said, oh, you know, we could nature sounds into this and play it along and that'd be perfect and, um, so he was he was pretty much our first sale mm -hmm. in, into the US and uh, and then for the next I don't remember how long it must have been maybe a year this sales tour went on which was just word complete word of mouth and so from there it was you know, one uh, one pop star after another in Bruce's little plane and we'd hop in and then go somewhere and then the next day we'd be in Memphis and the next day we'd be on Martha's Vineyard and the next day we were in New York and mm -hmm. um, showing it to all these people and then uh, when I was in New York I was showing it to somebody and he said oh look Peter would be really Peter would just lap this up do you, do you mind if I get him on the phone and I said no go ahead and say makes a phone call and says, oh Peter, I'm in the studio in LA and there's this amazing thing. He listened to this and he held the phone up and he played some 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 sounds on it. And uh, you've, got to, you've got to imagine a world in which you had no one had ever pressed a key on an electronic keyboard and it sounded like a piano. Mm -hmm. 
<laughs> even vaguely like a piano. And uh, then you know, he has a conversation, he says, oh, do you mind going to England? And I said, well, as long as someone buys me a ticket. <laughs> so uh, next thing I'm being picked up in, in London and driven out to Bath and Peter Gabriel's there in his trailer recording a, mm -hmm. an album. And uh, he, he introduced me to Kate Bush and um, then it was off to somewhere in the country where there was this really nice, I remember just there was a really nice studio in the country, I don't remember who it was, was it anymore. Rushton? Oh, Led Zeppelin. Led Zeppelin. Who were they? Who's the... Um, I think I heard of them. Um, no, I'm trying to remember the name of the guy I met. Um, uh, Rushton, wasn't it? No, no, it doesn't Anyhow, those guys. Uh, and so it just went on. And meanwhile, we had no capability to actually build these things. <laughs> oh, that detail. Oh, that. Uh, and Fair they'd way. said, how much do they cost? And we knew it was really expensive because <laughs> these memory chips, we were paying, I don't remember what, it was something like $100 a chip for these memory chips. Right. And we thought, this is going to be pretty expensive I think we'd better think of a number think of a number and we thought fifty thousand dollars and this this was at a time you could buy no, a house that, in it wasn't Sydney. That much, wasn't that much. I it think was, it, well, no, it was about twenty five initially it, we, yeah. we picked a big number you could buy a house for fifty thousand dollars in Sydney so we thought yeah it was whatever it was a lot was, in we thought that, that would be really plenty a lot, a lot in as it transpired it wasn't nearly enough <laughs> <laughs> the uh, you know we were paying a thousand dollars for a floppy disk drive we we're yeah. paying a hundred bucks each for memory chips, and that's the, back then. I mean, the alphanumeric so. keyboard, you couldn't go down to your local computer shop and pay twenty dollars and buy a keyboard. We were buying the switch modules from Honeywell for about five bucks a piece, so you've got to solder them into the board. The keycaps we were engraving and painting. The, Not the, personally, we got no, really we, we engravers had, to do it. But yeah, we had to was, have, have a, all that contracted. That was ridiculous. The box, the, the, the <laughs> case for the keyboard, I remember, was folded aluminium with welded seams and then spray painted. Yeah. So I guess that keyboard would have cost us maybe three or four hundred dollars to build. Yeah. And the, and by the way, the keyboard, the alphanumeric keyboard. In those days, there was the IBM Selectric typewriter. So when you hit a key, it went clunk, and people weren't used to pushing a key and it not making a noise. So we had a little relay on the board under the things. Every time you hit a key, the relay would clunk. So it made you feel like you're actually pushing something. <laughs> and there was all this sort of thing. And no one had used the computer, so they weren't used to bugs. So we couldn't have any. And, and um, what we had, we had our own operating system. We, there was no Microsoft and all that stuff. So we had, uh, we, we bought a commercial operating system which was used mainly for medical uh, stuff wasn't it um, that, that that operating system we had to we ended up having to buy the um, um, source code so that we could fix the bugs ourselves because a bug was completely intolerable you know should it happen with a maybe because it was on stage. almost impossible to do updates I mean these days you just log on to the internet and you update yeah. your software yeah. we had to put a floppy disk on a courier and send it somewhere so it was like a big yeah. deal it would, mm. it would take a few days and cost hundreds of dollars yeah. and uh, yeah and these as Kim said these were machines that were used live on stage and if someone pressed the button and nothing happened 
It, it was a big deal. People are used to the idea now. You just turn it off and on again. <laughs> yes, that's right. Yeah. I remember when we were, you know, if you were at a trade show over in the States or something and uh, we had to send over a new, uh, a, a new um, uh, bit of software, it, it could take two hours on the phone line including lots of dropouts and stuff to, to actually transfer. Oh, via, via modem. That was via a big modem. breakthrough when we could yeah, do that. Yeah, that was high tech when we could <laughs> finally even do that. That, yeah. was, uh, that was good. Yeah. That's a cr it's crazy. I was uh, thinking about um, just the differences in the technology that was happening at the time. You mentioned Stevie Wonder, and I know that he was working on that. Toto, I think it was. Otanto was his, his patch key. Uh, modular that he was doing and exactly the problem that you were describing of you create this sound and never again and so this concept that you introduced with saving it was a mm. huge thing and I remember him making a comment about that mm -hmm. was that one of the major selling points for people like him at that time or were there was the sound equal the I think sound the, equally impressive? Uh, just the ability to sample something and use mm. it use it musically well, Just that, and then the next thing was page R. Yeah, so then um, the, I, I guess that there were sort of two big innovations. One was that you could sample sounds and play them back at different pitches. And the other one was that it had this screen-based sequencer. So it was originally intended just to do sort of rhythmic backings and started off just being like a little loop where you could just play one one uh, sequence over and over again like an arpeggiator really and uh, then one of our uh, program one of our musician programmers came up with this amazing way of connecting any number of these patterns together and mm -hmm. he just came in one day and said oh look what I've done we can now you can go from one to the next to the next and suddenly you could put in as long a piece of music as you wanted and then the ability to record from the keyboard as well uh, came shortly thereafter and so the whole sort of mm. screen-based MIDI sequencer was born. Mm. And, uh, and again with, within the limitation, with the limitation of the one megahertz 8-bit microcontrollers, uh, it was on the edge of being impossible to, to to do that sort of thing, it just didn't have this, this processing power to, to do it well. So as a result, the, the timing was very loose by modern standards, um, which turned out to be quite a good thing because it gave, again, it gave it a very distinctive sort of feel. It was all a little bit organic. <laughs> and uh, it was also limited to eight tracks. So it forced the musician to be very creative and uh, very economical. So, you know, these days there's just no limit. You just do three, 300 tracks, not a big deal. So you don't have to really think about it much. But when, you've, when your canvas is eight tracks of eight-bit sounds at a half a second long, <laughs> it really forces you to, to be much more creative. The, the Series 3, I think, was that, was that, that was 16. Uh, yeah, channels the sixteen three and sixteen bits as well, so it was a, a big leap in yeah. audio quality and um, and so on. And, and we also incorporated that uh, the first disc recorder, hard disc recorder, 
so you could just record um, uh, audio content and then we merged that into into post-production capabilities so that you could do sound effects for film soundtracks and then we started synchronizing that with uh, with the video so we, we could synchronize the the sequencer with with video and it became very popular for doing um, uh, you know movie soundtracks particularly TV series where they needed to do the music compositions very quickly and you had people like uh, Jan Hammer doing Miami Vice he was one of the first guys to do it and uh, he he um, they did some amazing things. That was, but that was on a series three. That was, and they were like a hundred thousand dollars. They were really. Oh no, that's no, probably sixty thousand. I think. <laughs> oh no, they optioned up pretty quickly. <laughs> yeah. Up, didn't they? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, like a Tesla. <laughs> Option it up. Uh, so um, yeah, no, it was it was all good fun, um, and that. But and then uh, with the the second iteration of Fairlight, we, we sort of lost the, the market to the music market, we, it all got too expensive and we were stuck on this proprietary very expensive platform. And yeah, by our, this time PCs had come along. By this time PCs had come along and none of our programmers would touch them with a barge pole because they didn't have control of the operating system and so yeah. that was a problem for us. And, uh, but it also brought the price point way down so we well, couldn't compete. We couldn't compete and then, so we, that's when we took it into post-production and, um, and multi-track recording and, um, um, and uh, we ended up with a 24-track uh, disc recorder but it could only play any 16 tracks at a time because for post-production you don't need all 24 tracks usually playing at once in, in, in simple production. So, um, and those became very popular. And uh, so that was the sort of second generation of Fairlight stuff. Mm. And, and then they moved on to, this was after Peter and I left, they, they moved on to um, doing FPGAs to do all that, rather than digital signal processing, to do to all, all the audio processing. So I think the latest generation of Fairlight does a thousand audio tracks at 192K, you know, um, that's now sold under the name of Black Magic, which is really a video company, but, but it's really Fairlight technology behind that. Mm. Yeah, so that's pretty much the state of the art in, in, uh, in audio production now. So why did you guys get out of it? What was that like? We went uh, broke. <laughs> yeah, well, we didn't. We didn't. We didn't. We forgot to mention that that neither of us had any idea about running a business. <laughs> and and we had, and and whenever we made any money, which of course we did pretty quickly initially, because we were turning over millions of dollars, you know. And uh, so, but we just thought, oh, we better employ some more people. You know. So well, we, the development and support uh, costs were just completely out of proportion. We were. We, we had. Yeah. I don't know, I guess we, we, at our peak we had about a hundred staff and about a good half of them were in R&D. So it was completely financially not viable. Yeah. And this is all on zero capital. Well, so yeah. there were many, many times that Kim and I had to go out with our credit cards <laughs> and get cash advances so we could pay the wages. Yeah. 
Uh, and that went on for 14 years. <laughs> we managed, uh, that's probably the biggest miracle of the Fairlight story, <laughs> is that we survived 14 years. We weren't into the fail early thing. We were into the hold on by our teeth till the last possible moment. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, and so none of us had any idea about business. and uh, <laughs> It was pretty yeah. scary, really. But, yeah. but the, uh, we did get venture capitalists involved eventually and uh, certainly in the second generation Fairlight and uh, by that time we were, we'd sort of been burnt out and started other projects. No, it was all too little too late. <laughs> yes, yeah. I mean we spent about, I remember we spent about two years negotiating this investment and it was like $500,000 or something, it was a ridiculously small amount yeah. which we sort of blew in ten minutes. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that no, was pretty much financially doomed. Yes, it was one of the problems of being down here in, a, in Australia. Well, it's also one of the problems of being first to do something, that we were like yeah. 10 years too early for everything. We sort of, we paved the way for the, uh, for the second mouse to come and get the cheese. <laughs> <laughs> and make some money out of it. Yeah. <laughs> So at that point, is that when you started getting into the, the medical uh, field? Oh uh, no, the medical before? the medical field was a bit of a blip on the on the way in ni 1982, which was sort of in the middle of oh, okay. middle of the the Fairlight thing. Um, I developed this medical emergency alarm thing, but that was only a you know sort of a background spare time project, and then I didn't have anything to do with that for, for many years. Mm. We did car burglar alarms for a while to make some, <laughs> we had some business That was probably the most profitable thing we did actually. <laughs> yes, yeah. until, until someone melted down their BMW's entire wiring harness because they'd installed it wrongly. No. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, we tried a few uh, things to... to yeah, those were in the earlier days when we were just doing anything to generate a bit of cash flow before we had the thing. Oh, we made computers for Remington, remember? Business computers. Business yeah. computers, yeah. Uh, the because, and we made uh, the, you know, these beeper pager things you used to have? We made the computers for the Telstra, the telephone company here that managed the, the beeper system in Australia. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah we so did a few, few little side projects. <coughs> yeah, so just anything that would, would make a bit of money. We had... Uh, the Navy arrived on the doorstep one day. They wanted us to to do some stuff that would they wanted to use in submarines to detect other submarines. Oh, this was the famous towed array. Towed array. <laughs> they said they wanted they wanted to build a towed array, which means that the, they have this long thing with an array of microphones that they tow behind the submarine, and it it builds up this 3D image. And I just immediately thought a whole lot of frogs in a sort of a two-dimensional <laughs> matrix <laughs> was my idea of a toad array. Um, <laughs> but uh, we decided we didn't want to do military stuff. We were all very, you know, anti-establishment in those days. <laughs> um, which was a big mistake. We could have probably could have made a lot of money out of that. <laughs> made a killing. Yes, because... Uh, uh, they needed to d detect whether it was a whale or another submarine that was about to ram into them, you know, I think that was the problem. <laughs> so. Just look for the Japanese flag on that. Right. <laughs> <laughs> There's whales involved. Yeah. 
We talked a little bit about um, this, this, the CVI, the, the video component, right? What was oh, yeah, that's true. Um, yeah, well, we had a guy in our, uh, who was programming for the, for the CMI, the Computer Musical Instrument, uh, called Keir Silverbrook. And um, he was a very bright uh, cookie, and he uh, had this idea for doing this thing called the Collider Pen. And, and he said, oh, I've got this idea. You use the light pen and you sort of can draw pictures. He had a young kid, so he was doing this for the kid. You could draw pictures on the TV screen and they'd be kaleidoscopic and you could add effects to that. And he said, oh, can I use all the equipment at night in my own time to sort of develop this thing? I said, yeah, sure, go ahead. So he, he did that for a couple of months and came up with this prototype and we played with it and said, oh, yeah, this is good here, but I'm sort of getting bored, you know, after a couple of minutes. <laughs> and, uh, and I don't know, did you suggest, I can't remember, someone said, well, why don't you just put in, how about you allow us to put in a real video image and then you key that onto the colitis pen and you maybe can do some colorizing Peter, Peter had done the previous colorizing project and anyway it just sort of evolved this thing and, it, and we ended up bringing out a product called the computer video instrument the CVI and it could do combination of uh, multi it was live effects live yeah. effects combined with yeah live digital effects combined with um, colorized effects yeah. and, and again it was very low res 8 bit sort of cheapo no it was 12 bits well it was low res <laughs> it was <laughs> it three was bits four for bits each per color. color i was a four yeah. sorry four bits per color, four bits for each color. <laughs> uh, but the the beauty of it was that it was it was quite cheap for, for video equipment it was mm. like a few thousand dollars and it was at a time when there really was you know there, there were there were a couple of companies that were making these very, very expensive digital effects machines that were like hundreds of thousands of dollars. Mm. And uh, our instrument was really well suited for the sort of backyard production. In, the, in those days, the state of the art was two half-inch tape recorders and uh, you, were, you could edit your own videos and, uh, and so on. And so this gave those, those sort of people the ability to do coloured effects and uh, some, something more than, than just chroma key. Mm. And it did, it did character generation and all that, which in those yeah. days was new, you know, I mean, believe it or not. Yeah, um, and if you look at a lot of the, lot of the uh, early rock clips in the 70s, uh, you see these very characteristic effects, maybe mainly sort of the, the mirrored kaleidoscopic things with coloured trails and that sort of mm. thing because it was cheap and easy to do using this instrument. And we sold a few, I think it was a pretty successful. Yeah. Quite a lot of those we sold. Mm. And, um, so uh, yeah, that was, that was pretty interesting. Yeah. Did you guys have a connection with Herbie Hancock? Did oh yeah. Tell me Herbie, about uh, Well Herbie is one of those guys that was into anything new and high-tech he so he loved he, he was one of our earliest customers in in los angeles and uh he was incredibly enthusiastic and gave us lots of good feedback about features that would be good to have and so he and, and a lot of people like herbie um you know we're, the lucky thing that we although these things are expensive 
we were dealing with very creative people, you know, who were giving us a lot of good feedback and suggestions, and um, that was part of the fun of the whole exercise, really. Um, but uh, Herbie, yeah, what, did you have much to do with Herbie directly? I uh, well, I I met him on that first trip. Oh, was that on the first Bruce, trip? Yeah. Oh, okay. Oh, wow. yeah, I didn't realise. Okay, so he would have been one of the first orders then. Yeah, probably. he was. He was a, yeah. an early adopter, yeah. and uh, he he did that uh, very famous Sesame Street demo. I think that was him. Yeah, that's right. And uh, it was yeah, funny it's on because YouTube, you can look that up. a couple of uh, <laughs> a couple of years when I did a NAM show in two thousand and eleven, uh, there were a, a lot of guys came up, just sort of w walking down the down the aisle and they'd, they'd see a fair light there and they'd stop and do a double take and say, is that a fair light? And I said, yeah, it is. And uh, a number of them said, you know, my, my introduction to fair light was as a five-year-old kid, I saw it on Sesame Street and it stuck in my mind and that set, set me on my path and they're now, you know, 30-year-old music producers. Is or, that right? Yeah, and uh, the, yeah, really, it was very, very influential, and it sort of sowed the seed in this generation of kids who then went. A lot of them went on to actually pursue this professionally. And and another person you met on the first trip was um, Geordie Hormel. Uh, was, yes. Was he on the first trip? Yeah, I think he was. And Geordie. Village Recorder. Village Recorder Studios. Geordie uh, uh, owned Village Recorder Studios, which was a big studio in um, West LA. Um, and at the time, I think Fleetwood Mac were recording Tusk or something, weren't they? Mm -hmm. The Tusk album. Um, anyway, um, they saw the Fairlight and just ordered one straight away. You know, amazing. And then Geordie, and Geordie, who was a musician himself, in fact, he used to write music for the I Love Lucy show. <laughs> and and being a Hormel, he was one of the two heirs to the Spam Empire, <laughs> which and was the black of, sheep of the family. <laughs> the black sheep of the family. <laughs> so so Geordie was a real character, um, and he said, uh, "Listen, if you give us, if you give me the exclusive distribution for America, I'll buy every unit you can make." And you know, we sort of thought about it. Okay. <laughs> 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 so yeah. it's fair to say that... Uh, it was the perfect distributor, more money than cents. Yes, <laughs> more money than cents. And, and, and happy course, to keep throwing money at it. And the problem was once he ran out of all his friends to sell these to, you know, he had no idea about marketing or anything else, so we had to come over. But and he had his own studios as well, so he could put a few in there. That's true, yeah. So <laughs> it was quite funny. Yeah. And, uh, very fun. Well, there was a, you had mentioned this a little bit, I think, Kim, the uh, the rebirth of Fairlight. Was, were you involved with that? Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, Pete, when... Which, which one? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> which one? There were several. There's, there's a couple. Uh, the, the first one uh, was, um, we, there was a, there was a stock market crash in 88, 1988. And we had one sort of competitor. They didn't make an equivalent machine to us, but 
they would often sell against us, and it was an American company uh, called New England Digital making a thing for us in Clavier. Mm. And they had just managed to raise, I think, I I'm making this up, but it was in the order of eight or nine million dollars just months before this crash. And um, we had offices in Los Angeles and New York and, and um, big overheads in, in the States. And, um, and what they were able to do after this crash, when everyone stopped buying anything that was expensive because it was all it was all doom and gloom and no one wanted to no one wanted to pay a lot of money for these machines, they were able to sort of fund, you know, uh, you know lease the the com the competitor our competitor without any guarantees and so on. So we were sort of struggling to to sell against this. Um, um, effectively a free leasing, you know, with, with no guarantees. And mm. so we were sending machines over to our, our US offices, but not being paid for them. <laughs> so they'd sell them at whatever price they could get and, you know, to cover their overheads. And we were mine, meanwhile, slowly going down the gurgler. And uh, so it was a, it was a pretty tough time. Um, and however, at, by that time, we did have a a venture capitalist involved uh, funding the company and they were going to put some more money into the company um, but there was a few boardroom things that went on I won't go into what went on but <laughs> that all fell through so uh, so that ended up going into receivership um, uh, a bit, bit like chapter 11 in America but different um, they don't let you trade out of it, more or less. It just shuts it down. Mm. So uh, Peter and I decided that we had a bit of money saved away, so we we um, we kept paying the some of the key people. There, we sort of had it in our mind that we'd be able to resurrect it somehow, and uh, so we were paying the, some of the key R and D people, and um, and and we did get some more funds to, to start Fairlight number two. But at, but we decided to, to forget about the music market at that stage and to move into post-production, which we'd started to do with the old company. Mm. But the but the audio post-production market was screaming for... Um, non-linear editing was really Non-linear non yeah. editing was what, what yeah. was really was desperately just being born then. Yeah. yeah. And so we were able to introduce the first sort of high-end version of that to Hollywood and we were selling a, a variant of the highest end version of the music machine which we converted into a multi-track disc recorder that could do object-based editing and so on. So we, we were doing pretty well with that uh, for, for quite a while and... Um, that was the only really profitable period of the whole Fairlight yeah, story. Yeah, it, <laughs> it, yeah. it was... Yeah, it was profitable for, for quite a while and... Um, Peter, at the early stages of that company, decided he wanted to move to the mountains and um, just relax a bit. <laughs> well, it wasn't uh, much relaxing. I went off on another... On another... Uh, unrelaxing. <laughs> tilting at a different windmill. <laughs> yeah, and Is so... Is that the right hemisphere? Well, um, mainly that, that goes into the whole ICE TV mm. story. Mm. So that... that my, my, my vision was I was thinking, you know, from what I've learnt in the audio sampling world, what's the next big thing? 
and I thought digital video is going to be where it's at. And I said one one day every home will have a set-top box with a hard drive in it that'll be cheap enough and good enough to be able to record TV. And uh, I came up with what uh, pretty much TiVo came out with a few years later. But again, I was about 10 years too too early and it wasn't practical, it wasn't economical, it just wasn't viable in 1990. Uh, but I thought this is, you know, th 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 this is the future, digital video is the future, and we're talking one in every home, not just, uh, you know, identified that our big mistake was we could only sell our fair lights to rich musicians and there weren't that many of them in the world. So let's, so I thought I'll make something that every home, everyone will want to have. And uh, along the way, I, like a, I thought an essential part of this DVR was going to be some sort of an on-screen guide because at that time, the state of the art was video cassette recorders with timers. And the, the, the world's biggest problem in 1990 was no one could program their video recorder. You'd always record the wrong program or you'd miss half of it or something. So I thought, I can solve that problem. We'll have a TV guide on the screen and you'll point and click and you say, I want that program and it'll take care of it all for you. And that was all great. Um, but then I thought, if we're going to record the program, why don't we also not record the advertisements? And I thought, there, and I looked at how other not people... Not everyone liked that idea. Well, I was surprised. <laughs> I thought everyone would like that idea. <laughs> the, the, the people, in the, the people right. behind the desks didn't like that yeah. idea. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, I thought, and it, if it was going to be viable, it had to be completely reliable because you don't want to watch your recording and find that it's actually cut out bits of the program. And a lot of people had tried to do this and failed. And there'd been lots and lots and lots of... Uh, I spent a long time just going to the patent office and looking at all the different ways people had tried to do this and why they'd all failed and so on. And I came up with a system that, w that really worked. And uh, I started a new company called Zap TV. And it was a set-top box that recorded it was like TiVo but without the ads and it was the without the ads part that was its downfall in the end but <laughs> but the 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 market really liked it people like Joe Public just said I'll have one and I uh, I started I started a company to develop this and sell it and of course it was going to be a consumer product and it was going to be a very uh, large amount of capital required to, to, to get this thing out there and uh, when I first announced it there was a, uh, I remember being on a, a, an ABC television program where they got someone from uh, one of the TV stations in to, to talk about it and uh, you know, the interviewer said well you know, what do you think about this? And he said, oh, you know, if, if this gets on the market, it'll be the end of free-to-air TV. Uh, it'll, uh, the, the world will end, the sky will fall. And... And he was right. Uh, well, 
Yes and no. <laughs> so, he, so he said to me, what, uh, you know, what, what's your response, Mr Vogel? And I said, well, all, all we're doing is automating what people are doing anyway. In that people, you know, all the surveys, will, and everyone knows that people mute the TV when an ad comes on and they go off and they go to the bathroom or they make a cup of tea. And so in reality, it's not going to really change the viewership of ads. All it's going to do is expose the fraud that the television industry is perpetrating on the advertisers by charging them so many dollars for their advertisement when only half the people are watching it. So it's just going to force them to be honest. Anyhow, uh, the, the fellow from Channel 9 said, well, if Mr Vogel goes ahead with this, we're going to sue him. So uh, I went away and I, I went to a, uh, a, a law firm in Sydney and said, can you look at this and tell me, is there any way, you know, if someone came to you and said, is there anything that we can sue him on? And they looked at it and they said, no, look, there's absolutely nothing. Uh, you, you're com completely safe, all you're doing is automating what people are already doing, you're not copying programs, there's no copyright issues, you're not interfering with the broadcast or anything. Right as rain. So uh, I, I started raising capital, I had an IPO and we'd started actually taking subscriptions from the, from the public and of course the, it, it was a great Product, a great product for an IPO because the mums and dads said, shit, everyone's going to want this, I want, I want in. So the money was rolling in and uh, then we got a letter from Channel 9 saying we have started legal proceedings against your company and we'll see you in court. And of course, once you get involved in legal proceedings, you have to call off the IPO because you don't know what the, mm. what the future holds. Uh, so to cut a long story short, that, uh, that killed that company, had to give everyone their money back, uh, it went to, went, went to a first trial where their case was thrown out, it went to appeal where they won, and then it went to the High Court, which is the final appeal, where it was again reversed, and so I was, I was proved right, but it was a bit of a pyrrhic victory by that stage, because mm. the company was well and truly dead. Mm. So Did that you was recover the, any of your expenses from, from that? No. Mm. <laughs> oh, that's not uh, Yeah. Well, you do, you, in theory, Rick, you get a, a cost award, but that only covers about probably 60 or 70%. It's always uh, important, I think, for um, engineers to have the opportunity to reflect back on their work. And I'm so glad that these guys took the time to do that for our camera and for the oral history program because I mean thinking about the, like the rebirth they were just talking about I mean an incredible series of events took place in a very short period of time that allowed them to have the experience that they had and what resulted was really the foundation and inspiration of a musical instrument product that changed the category. I mean, we now have a whole slew. Look at the NAMM show floor. You know, we've got musical instruments in the electronic field that probably would not have been developed had it not been for these two guys, at least not at the way it happened. And that's what is so incredible to me. So um, when I'm shouting out to Will earlier, I got to give a shout out to these two guys, Kim and Peter. Thank you so much for taking the time to do this interview for us. It's been so meaningful to to uh, the industry. Yeah, and it really shows what the oral history program is all about here at NAM. 
finding those guys and girls that were really innovative in their field, changed things up, and how it impacted the products industry from there on. And I think they're the perfect example. Well said. So let's get back to the rest of this interview with Kim and Peter. Now the internet's around, and so every other day I was getting emails from people who were Fairlight owners, and I was still getting these emails saying, you know, how, how do I fix my Fairlight? It's broken. And I'd write them back and say, why are you still using a Fairlight? You know, you can get garage band for free. <laughs> and I would get these outpourings. People would, would tell me their life story and they'd say, you know, I first saw a fair light when I was, you know, at, at school and, and uh, you know, there were people who had, someone told me he had deliberately failed his music exams three times so that he could keep using the fair light that the music school had. <laughs> and... Uh, <laughs> Uh, you know, all these incredible stories and, and pe- people were, were telling me their life stories. And, you know, I, I saw the, saw the, I was in this, stu- I was a session muso at some studio, mm-hmm. you know, playing drums or something and there was a fair light brought into the studio and it changed my life and I said, I'm going to, one day I'm going to own one of those and now I do. I bought it on eBay for $9,000 <laughs> and I have restored it and, uh, and you know, and the, I, 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 I met, uh, I had a, I was invited by someone who works at Apple and he said, oh look, there's a few of us at Apple who are really keen Fairlight enthusiasts, you, you know, next, next time you're down on Infinity Way, could you drop in and we'll, you know, buy you lunch? And so I did that and there was just half a dozen people there and there's all Apple employees and they all own Fairlights, which they've bought on eBay and they've restored. And <laughs> and I said, uh, you know, one of the guys, you know, who was an Apple software engineer, and I said, why do you do this? You know, you've got all this cutting-edge stuff here. You could have as much technology that's far better than that. And uh, he said, well, when I sit down at my Fairlight, I feel like a musician. And he said, when I fit da- sit down at my Apple, I feel like a technician. And that was it. That was it. And he says, and, and that's what I do on the weekends. I go into the garage and I close the door and I dim the lights. And I turn on my lava lamp <laughs> and I boot up my eight-inch eight floppy drives and I just have a wonderful time. And I light my funny cigarette. <laughs> Probably. <laughs> so uh, I thought... And this was, uh, we're, we're now uh, 2009, which is exactly 30 years since that visit I made to Stevie Wonder, mm. sold him the first, the first one. And I said, maybe what I should do is make a 30th anniversary reissue of the original Fairlight. So look and feel of the original machine, but use modern technology so it'll be serviceable, it'll be cheaper. It'll, it'll work reliably. You won't have to find floppy, eight-inch floppy disks and so on. Um, so that's what I that's what I did. And the the wrinkle there was that the trademark, the Fairlight trademark, in Australia and in the US, was owned by a uh, uh, Melbourne com- uh, a Melbourne family who'd who'd bought the 
bought the assets from from Fairlight when it went broke after Kim left second time and uh, so I, ne I, I didn't know whether I really needed the trademark or not but I thought it would be easiest just to, to license the trademark so I entered into a license deal with this company, the, the then Fairlight company in 2009 to produce this uh, commemorative edition and then along the line, uh, this went on for a couple of years and I just started promoting it. I'd been to a NAM show and demonstrated and I'd started taking orders and, and actually selling these things. And the guy who owns, who owned the Fairlight, who owned the trademark, uh, apparently had a stroke and was quite s seriously unwell and his son took over the business. And the son, for reasons best known to himself, said, I don't want Vogel using the trademark anymore. And I said, well, I've, I've got a license to, to do so. Here, here it is. And he said, well, I'm cancelling that license. I said, you can't cancel a license. That's what a license is for. You know, I've paid for it. <laughs> I give you money, you give me the trademark. And he said, well, if you do that, I'm going to sue you. You stop. You know, this was another one of if you do that, I'm going to sue you. Things. So I rolled my eyes, <laughs> and uh, my wife said to me, "You're not going <laughs> to, not going to do all this again, are you?" And I said, "Yep." <laughs> and uh, so, in due course, I get a letter from their lawyers saying we have started proceedings in the Federal Court of Australia. We're suing you. Um, and I said, I'll see you in court. And um, I'd, I don't think he ever thought for a millisecond that I would actually contest it, mm. in that this was sort of, I think, st standard business procedure, is you send a scary letter to someone who doesn't have a lot of money and they'll pull their head in and cave in. Um, so I fronted up in the court and I, I said that uh, I wanted leave to appear for my company so because I couldn't afford lawyers and I got, got leave from the court to do that and then the fight was on and uh, my wife rolled her eyes and said how long is this one going to go on for and I said, probably a long time. They've got deep pockets <laughs> and I'm not going to back down. And uh, I said, well, how long is it going to take? And I said, I'll bet you I can get a law degree before this is finished. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, as it happens, I did my last exam yesterday. <laughs> is that true? <laughs> yes. <laughs> so I now have a uh, law degree. <laughs> and the case is still on foot. No kidding. So uh, it's it's been through the federal court. It's been to appeal. It's uh, it's it's now at its third stage. It's got a couple more. <laughs> I'd say it's got a couple more years in it. So that's where we are right now. <laughs> that is crazy. Yeah, I've never set foot in my in a courtroom except for a parking fine. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Is, was that the impetus to, to get a law degree or were you thinking yeah. about that before? 
No, but I, I realise that I've actually spent more time in front of a judge than a lot of lawyers have, and I don't get paid for it. <laughs> so I thought, um, how hard can it be? <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> what a story. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. Wow. So, uh, so you have a farm, and are are, are you working on? I've got a farm. Yeah, but uh, yeah. But what are you doing now? Where's well, your no, well, degree? Well, what happened with Fairlight Number Two? As I said, with when we restarted Fairlight to do post production, uh, that was going well. It, we were selling to we had probably seventy percent of Hollywood, uh, Warner Brothers. Mm. Sony Pictures, Todd O'Glen, Glenn, Glenn all had felt like doing their post-production because it was very efficient. It was pretty inexpensive. It was about $100,000, but it was very efficient compared to what they were using. And I, um, and by now we were getting some venture capital into the company. And the people that had originally funded Fairlight Number 2, um, um, after Peter left, I said, well, okay, well, I'll go and look after R&D because Peter was doing that when he was there. And, and you appoint a, you know, a CEO because, you know, I didn't really want to keep doing that. And, um, but what they wanted to do was to keep high end and, and I wanted to move it down. I wanted to move the platform down onto the PC sort of Mac platform. Uh, like DigiDesign, for example, but but the, the ultimate decision makers were saying, no, 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 you know, we can keep our high-end thing, there'll always be a high-end market. I said, well, I don't know about that, you know, that's going to saturate, we're going to run out of Sony Pictures and Warner Brothers pretty soon, we've got to head down market. And uh, they insisted on not moving to a generic platform, and so I said, well, look, I'm, I'm going to go and do something else if you don't mind because <laughs> I don't know that that's going to work <laughs> um, so I I started a company uh, at that stage uh, I'd had a call from an ex uh, Fairlight employee who'd started a company called Lake DSP and they'd come up with this headphone technology which where you could wear headphones and but the sound would appear out of head mm. using this um what's called long convolution um, filters. And, um, and they said, can you help us commercialise this? And I said, oh yeah, I, I'm still doing a bit of time at Fairlight, but I'm basically arguing with everyone. So yeah, I'll do a week on with you and a week on with them. And that should work for 12 months. And, and I did that. And ultimately, uh, they, we sold that to Dolby or the, they, sold it to Dolby, it's now called Dolby Headphones. Hmm. And, um, and ultimately Dolby bought that company uh, and now it's called Dolby Australia and they've got about 200 engineers working in Sydney. And, um, but part of the, what I learnt from this convolution technology and, I, and a bit of background, before I even started the elect electronics magazine, I was, I was interested in loudspeakers and I built for my band, big loudspeakers, and we made active loudspeakers and um, that could go loud and didn't blow up. And uh, 
and then I sort of put that that was sort of at the back of my mind through the Fairlight days but I thought I, I could use this convolution DSP technology to make loudspeakers sound more realistic and um, and I was introduced to a guy uh, called um, Paul Glendening who was a, a brilliant um, engineer in that area in, in, you know, brilliant mathematician and all that sort of stuff that you need to be to, to deal with, with, with that technology and so we founded a company called um, well it's called DEQX D -E -Q -X. it stands for Digital EQ and Crossover so it's DEQX.com and, and that we've been focusing on uh, trying to create a high definition loudspeaker that would effectively be capable one day of actually reproducing high definition audio media because loudspeakers are always being the, the weakest link in the audio chain usually get about one percent distortion which I knew a lot about from my series one and two days at Fairlight <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, and so using using this technology um, We've been trying to um, to to provide uh, platforms for loudspeaker manufacturers to to just um, up the ante on loudspeaker performance. So um, so we're now in our twentieth year, believe it or not. I started that in '97, and uh, it's a small company. I didn't want to get VCs involved, so it's it's all happened more slowly than I would have liked. But it's it's gone pretty well, and um, we we've now that. Now the technology is around, you know, on ARM processors, the sort of processors you, you have in your iPhone or whatever, that can that can do the amount of computation that you need to uh, to do this stuff. So um, so that's been what I've been up to <laughs> lately. That's awesome. Well, you guys, this has been fantastic. I really appreciate you spending time with me. Yeah, well, pleasure. It's been great. Thank you. Thanks a lot. That's all. Thank you so much for sticking with us. We know that was a long one, but isn't it amazing? Yes. I'm, glad, I'm glad we had that opportunity. <laughs> yeah, thank you very much for listening. I appreciate it. And if you're looking to leave a comment or a review, we always appreciate that on iTunes, SoundCloud. I don't think you can leave comments on Spotify, but maybe you can. I don't know. Uh, try it out. Let us know if you can. <laughs> uh, also on Stitcher and on the NAM.org website as well. Thank you so much for listening, and we will see you again in two weeks. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Music History Project. This has been Mike Mullins. Michelle Shedler. And Dan Del Fiorentino. If you like what you heard today, please subscribe on iTunes and leave us some feedback. If you have recommendations for future episodes, you can send those over to library at nam.org.